Welcome to Arts for the Health of It, a podcast where you will discover creative ways to improve your health and well-being. Someone may have told you that art isn't for you, but they were wrong. Anyone can create arts for the health of it. No talent or experience necessary. I'm just a little songbird. Try to fly my way homeward with the melody and I make the beat. Don't know where it'll take me, take me. Cause when I'm in the dark of night, I sing my way back to the light. Come along with me and your heart will see that a song changes everything. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Arts for the Health of It podcast. I'm your host, Richard Wilmore. And I'm your co-host, Constanza Rader. And I hope you're ready to be maybe a little bit uncomfortable. Um, How do you feel about the words death and dying? Do you try to avoid those words? Do you use other terms, um, other euphemisms for death and our next guest um, talks very directly about death and dying. And one of the things that she's most proud of is that she helped to give her her sister um, a good death. And she has the most, uh, such an incredible story, Richard. I love everything about her and what she does and her mission and her background. It just is so compelling and beautiful. You can tell she's such a storyteller and that's really what her... Her title is, and I want that uh, title. Um, and her name is Andrea Wilson Woods. Yes. She's amazing. And uh, just the way she talks about it. And she um, she's a writer who loves to tell stories. And she's a patient advocate who founded the nonprofit Blue Fairy, the Adrian Wilson Liver Cancer Association. She's the CEO and co-founder of Cancer University, which is a for-profit social benefit digital health company. I don't know what any of that means either before I talk to her. So she'll explain all of that. (laughs) And uh, with Cancer University, she synergizes her talents of coaching, writing, teaching, and advocacy. She has a best-selling and award-winning book, Better Off Bald, A Life in in 147 Days, which is a medical memoir about raising and losing her sister to liver cancer. Um, Her sister was 15 uh, when she died. And I think what what I loved about um, talking to Andrea is getting the perspective of the person who's caring for mm. the person. And there's so much emphasis as there should be on the person who's going through everything, but everybody else in their life who loves them and who's trying to do the best that they can. Um, it's so hard. And I, there are so many stories of like, when I was younger and my dad going through radiation and not knowing if he was staying alive or not and, Mm. and feeling so scared and helpless and not knowing what to say. And you either say sometimes the wrong thing or you say nothing. And, and um, yeah, it was, it was, I loved talking to her. I'm so glad she came on and we also, Oh, sorry. Go. No, keep going. Uh, She, uh, we talked about, about, dying with dignity and I thought that was so special because we all are so afraid of it I'm generalizing Mm. not everyone's afraid of it but 
you know, death is everyone. We're all, there's only one way to get out of here and that's death. And we're also (laughs) afraid to talk about it. And she celebrates talking about it. And, and it's such a great conversation. Yeah. I think it's such an important conversation. You know, Richard and I were talking that we have seen amazing examples of good deaths in the hospital and really heartbreaking examples of bad deaths in the hospital. And a lot of it comes down to how well a person and their community embraces the reality that's happening. And in the, in light of that just takes hold of it and makes it the best, most positive, loving environment for that transition, for that process, for that dying process. Um, And, you know, where people aren't just dying in hospitals hooked up to ventilators, but instead can be surrounded by loved ones in their own home, surrounded by things that bring them joy. Um, Oh my gosh, I'm going to tear up just thinking about it. And, um, you know, my, my grandmother just passed this last week. She, well, here I am using a death euphemism. (laughs) My grandmother just died this past weekend and she was surrounded by her children and we got to talk to her and sing to her and, um, it just was a really beautiful time. And I think when we're resistant to talking about and, and facing the reality of these situations, we and inadvertently end up in worse in a worse way than we intended. And there's, I wanted to give a little definition because one of the things that um, Andrea mentions is the importance of advanced directives. And some of you may know, be familiar with that term, but but for those of you who aren't, um, an advanced directive is a written statement where you can write down your wishes regarding medical treatment. This often sometimes includes a living will so that people that are if for some reason you are unconscious and you can't communicate your wishes, it's written down. Ooh, and, and make oh, and just make sure you wait till uh, you listen to the end because she has a a little gift at the end, a little um, silent, um, focused breathing meditation exercise that she leads us through. So make sure you listen for that one. Yes, we're gonna talk, 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 and then we're gonna shut up. Yay! Silent. <laughs> so there you go. Here is Andrea Wilson Woods. You're doing. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. <laughs> How did you? When did you begin to realize the the power of words? Oh, I I've always liked to tell stories. Like I I've always liked to tell them and I've always been really good at them. Like I was the person mm. who was good at it's sort of the the long jokes, you know what I mean? That build and build and build and then have a punchline. And I'm not I, I hate puns. So I can't even believe I'm starting with this. I'm gonna give you a confession that very few <laughs> people know. I cannot uh-uh. believe this. Um I make very bad unintentional puns. And it makes me so mad at myself because I think it's the lowest form of humor. I can't <laughs> stand it, but I, I do it all the time. And my, my partner who's with me now laughs so hard because he knows it's never intentional when I do it. And it's so weird. But but back to storytelling. <laughs> um, those are the kinds of jokes I like. I just stories. Stories are what make people change. Um, mm. I think when pivotal moment professionally was when I was in a senator's office talking to a staffer 
FYI, if people don't know it, 24-year-olds run the world because <laughs> that's who you're talking to when you're lobbying. And I was rattling off numbers and whatever, and her eyes glazed over. And mind you, I was a constituent, so she was supposed to actually be listening, paying attention to me. And I just stopped because I realized what I was supposed to be saying, according to the people I was with, wasn't working. And I just stopped. I put everything aside, and I just looked her in the eye, and I just told her a story instead. And that changed everything. And I got that senator to commit to signing this bill. And and that made all the difference. And the story related, of course, but it, people really pay attention to stories. They, mm. they yeah, they're really a powerful art form for shifting perspective and behavior yeah. um, and such a powerful um, technology that we can employ. Um, so you have you have a really powerful story that it seems like drives your mission and a lot of the work that you do. Can you can you share a little bit about uh, about your story? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, it, it drives everything I do. Um, so I'm actually from the southeast, and I'm back here in Birmingham now. But when I was 18 years old, like many young women, I wanted to get as far away from my mother as possible. So I moved to Los Angeles, which I think was pretty far. And I went to school, I went to USC, and I graduated from USC, I turned 22 years old, and I ended up getting custody of my then eight-year-old sister, Adrian. Hmm. And I was her only parent, I was her legal guardian, I raised her all through my 20s. Um, I had no idea what a big deal that was until much later in life. I mean, I just, it was, it was my greatest joy. It's one of the best things I've ever done in my life, hands down. And, um, and until a month after Adrian's 15th birthday, just a few weeks shy of finishing her first year of high school, she was diagnosed with stage four liver cancer. And it was uh, really sudden, really devastating. And this will be 20 years ago, actually, uh, mm -hmm. coming up. And there was absolutely nothing they could do. And they were—they did palliative care without calling it that, which I wish I had known that's what they were doing. We probably would have made different choices. And she only lived 147 days with that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And up to that point, the only two people I had known who had died of cancer were my grandfather from lung cancer when I was seven and my uncle the year before from bone cancer. Mm. Um, and, and to go through and live through it with Adrian was such a different experience and also it was just so fast. And the, a year later, I turned 30 years old and it just mm. changed the whole course of my life. Wow. I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted you on here, well, maybe the top reason was because your favorite movie of all time is the wizard of oz <laughs> and i have a like I, that was mine i have an entire story of that i have a wizard of oz tattoo but oh a lot of God. people yeah it's <laughs> it goes deep um but I, I i've i've heard people kind of relate things like that to not like the light bulb moment but that moment in the wizard of oz where it goes from from black and white to technicolor and maybe in your case it went from from color to black and white, but that was that sort of the moment where, you know, that like before and after defining moment in your life. When Adrian got cancer or when I changed what I was going to do? I mean, it could have been really any of when she was, when you got custody of her, 
when she was diagnosed, her death, like, is was there a moment where you were like, oh my gosh, this is completely life altering? I think anyone who goes through cancer has a before and after moment. Mm-hmm. I definitely do. I think it's um, it's so crystal clear. Um, and and I really do. There is like before, <laughs> you know, day before we were shopping for makeup and she went a black eyeliner. <laughs> yeah. Day after we are now in Children's Hospital Los Angeles where we stayed for two weeks. Um, and she didn't go back to school. I didn't go back to work. So there's that. And then as far as changing my career and just changing my whole life. Um, you know, that it's funny how that happened because it, it was sort of accidental. Um, a year after she died, I was incredibly suicidal and I just wanted to find a way to channel my grief because I knew if I didn't do something, then I was just going to give up. And, and so I called up what was the largest liver disease organization in the U S and spoke to them and at that time, they weren't doing anything in liver cancer. And I said, okay, well, I would like to volunteer for you, blah, blah, blah. And they said, no. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean, no? And I said, my background is writing and marketing. I said, I'll create a program for you. You don't have to hire me. I'm happy to do this. Um, but they didn't have anything to do with liver cancer. And mm. yet they did liver disease. And I knew based on my sister's experience that liver cancer was only going to rise in the U.S. And it has. And, and so I just wanted to do something and I talked to the very top person. I was super pushy about it. This is the greater Los Angeles chapter. So whoever she is, you know, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much for telling me no, because you changed the whole course of my life. And so she said, no, we don't do cancer. And she hung up and I just, I still remember sitting there and our dining room thinking, what, what? And I did a little more research and there wasn't a single nonprofit charity in the entire U S dealing with this cancer. Hmm. And which is actually very common outside of the U S and I was like, all right, well, I guess I got to do this. That was it. And that's So, and that's your organization, um, blue fairy, correct? That's good. You, boy, you guys did your research, man. Oh my God. (laughs) Well, it's such a, it's such a compelling image. And I'd love to hear about kind of the origins of that. And, and and I know it's in your sister's name too. Yeah. uh, I wish I could take credit for it. I can't. Um, I, it's Blue Fairy, the, uh, the Adrian Wilson Liver Cancer Association. And I knew I wanted her name in it. So people would remember her and of course, liver cancer. So people knew what we did. But I knew from a marketing and branding standpoint, something was missing and I I couldn't figure out what it was. So I actually emailed 10 people. These were all people who were there for my sister's journey with cancer. They were always around. Um, She always called them like her aunts and uncles. And I said, hey, help me out. Something's missing here. And and many of them were, were founding directors of the organization. They all came back with some version of Blue Fairy. Every single person. Really? Yeah. Blue was her favorite color. When she was diagnosed with cancer, she had blue hair, (laughs) and and which she shaved into four mohawks. (laughs) And then later she got a blue wig to maintain her look, as she liked to say. And (laughs) and, uh, and then fairy, because she loved fairies. Love, love, Mm. love. And um, when she got her blue wig, she ended up buying these blue butterfly wings, and she would wear them. And man, when she put on that wig and the butterfly wings, she looked like a fairy. We called her Mm. our blue fairy. And 
it was like it was staring me in the face. It was right there. And mm-hmm. the face of the blue fairy is actually Adrian's face. Oh my gosh. That's so beautiful. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> What's it like now? Like life was completely different and now you have this organization. Like what is it like? What does life mean to you now? Oh, um, I, I wish I could say things happened right away but I spent my whole 30s grieving I really did and that's what my next book is going to be about um I you know there are some things I wish I could change but um I just needed that time you know that was the that was the time I I needed to grieve um so the organization um we were very small. We're still relatively small, but it took a long time to get off the ground because I could only put so much energy into it before it became too much for me to bear. Um, so I really divided my time a lot. Um, but, uh, it was hard. It's really, it was really hard. I I Mm. wish I had taken, um, more of my cues from Adrian because when she was diagnosed with cancer, it was like, she just made this bucket list. You know, and she didn't say that, but it was like she really did. And she just decided, okay, I'm just going to do every single thing I've ever wanted to do and nothing is going to stop me. Mm-hmm. And she did almost every single thing she'd ever wanted to do. Wow. There was, there was only like one big thing that didn't happen. And um, <laughs> that was going on the Montel Williams show. <laughs> she loved oh, wow. wow. Yeah, that is dating yes. And and it was one of the few shows at the time we lived in LA, one of the very few shows filmed in New York. And by the time they called, she was just I I felt she was too sick to travel. Mm. I wasn't comfortable getting on a flight across the country. Um they wanted her to come on the show, but Oh, she was so close. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so that's your first book is Better Off Bald. Right. And is that kind of the 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 inspiration around that title is her really going after life and filling it in those 100, was it 47 days? Yeah. Yeah. Better off fall to life in 147 days. Thank you for getting that title. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) As a cancer survivor myself, I resonated with that title. Did you? Um, I did. I really did. That That was so much to me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I just I remember way back when when a few people criticized me for the title and I'm like, I'm not saying she's better off sick. That's not right. <laughs> you know, um, something happened when she lost her hair. It was it was the first time she looked in the mirror and thought she was beautiful Aww. and got a tear up. And that meant so much to me because we all knew she was beautiful and, and she, but she always kind of hid behind her hair, you know, dying at different colors and things. And, but when she didn't, couldn't hide anymore, it was, mm. um, it was such a beautiful thing to see that she, that she saw how beautiful she was. And she ended up having this perfectly round head. So <laughs> it was crazy. We all were just kind of, we joked about it and, um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. The book is about, um, it's about, that journey with Adrian and it's written like a journal because I kept a medical diary, but also she was a very good writer and she had started a journal before she got sick and kept writing in it when she was oh, sick. That, what a gift. Yeah. So she, you see her point of view as the patient and my point of view as the caregiver. Mm. And there's this moment in time where you see how radically different they are when I actually thought she was getting better and she knew she was getting mm. worse. 
Wow. She was right. Um, and so, but it's also that seven year period in my life when I raised her. Wow. Yeah. I, that I really loved what you said, you know, when, when she couldn't hide anymore and she really emerged and blossomed into herself. And I feel like that is one, one of the sometimes painful, but beautiful gifts that cancer can, can provide because it, it is excellent at stripping away. (laughs) It's like, oh, you thought that you could use that to cope or hide behind this armor or that. And it just, it just is ruthless. But I think what you're often left with is your raw self for better or worse um, to be, you know, seen and, and really fully, I think in the best, in the best situation when you're surrounded, I think with a loving community um, and can really more fully embrace who you are. And some people I think, describe that experience of of the before and after cancer is like that after cancer was when they felt like they really started living even if the time they had after was shorter um so that's again i love the title of your book (laughs) (laughs) may i share a really funny story with you guys really love um she adrian had such dry wit i mean she was probably the funniest person i ever knew and uh, we were going out to eat. Her counts were up. She felt good. Um, and the other thing about her baldness was she never lost her hair follicles. I don't know if it's because she kept cutting her own hair and shaving it, but she she never had that sort of clean, shiny, bald look. It never happened. It, and so many times, especially when she looked healthy and, and she had some color in her cheeks, people just assumed that she had shaved her head. Um, mm-hmm. she, she never lost, she didn't lose her eyebrows. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we were, anyway, we're eating and she's and, and we're at one of her favorite restaurants and, and um, with some friends. And I had, was watching um, this bus boy who was just gaga over her. I could tell <laughs> he's probably like 19 and he was like trying to figure out how to approach her. Now she didn't see him at all. She wasn't even paying attention. And he comes over and he's holding all these dishes. And I just like in my head, I knew, Oh boy, this is going to, this is going to be really bad. Like whatever's about to happen, it's going to be bad. And he was just like so nervous and full of energy. And he was like, Oh my gosh. Oh, oh well, you're, you, you're so beautiful. What made you decide to shave your head? It's just so beautiful. And she like, she doesn't miss the beat. She has like, she's having, she has soup and she just looks up at him and she's like, Oh, I have cancer. And she goes right back to her. <laughs> 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 and I just thought this poor kid was going to drop every single dish. You know? oh. And then she just looks at us. She goes, he won't be back. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Which I know sounds so mean, but it was, also, it was so funny. Cause she was, she, was, she was just tired of people staring at her. And I don't think she realized that he genuinely meant it. Like he really oh. did. And he, she was right, though. He didn't come back. <laughs> Your table like is that. still dirty. Yeah, right. <laughs> the ultimate conversation killer. Oh, yeah. I have cancer. Yep. <laughs> you have, there are so many layers to your story and Adrian's story. And there aren't, there aren't a lot of um, perspectives from the person who's caring for them. You know, there's so much focus on the person who's going through it. And obviously, the, like, 
that's the priority, but the people surrounding them and caring for them and loving them are also going through hell and nobody talks about it. So why was that important to you to, to tell that story? I heard it best from a cancer patient recently who said a survivor actually, who said that he thinks it's actually harder on the caregivers because they're not, they're not going through it. And, and they can't control things. Um, I'm talking to a caregiver right now who read something. I had written an article and, and she reached out to me and said, thank you because I had to just accept my husband does not want a second opinion. He just doesn't. Mm. And she's, she's in healthcare. So she knows a lot of people. She has mm. the resources. And, and she said, I just had to accept that this was a line he had drawn in the sand. And, and, and I went through that with Adrian. There were things that she put her foot down about and, and um, and that's really hard. It's it's really really hard. Um, and I also found I think I think this has gotten better in some places, but I found there wasn't really any support for caregivers. Mm-hmm. And um, I dragged Adrian to this teen club, this, these teenagers who had cancer that was at Children's Hospital, and she didn't want to go. And and I felt feel bad still that I dragged her there, but I was able to understand, you know, within that moment when she had a complete meltdown that it wasn't about something I thought she needed to do. It was something I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I was so desperate that I I wanted to find other parents. Mm. You know, it was hard enough raising her in my twenties when almost nobody I knew had children. And, but then she's diagnosed and I, I, I didn't, I wasn't able to connect with anyone. Mm. And, and so that, um, I think, I think it's very hard for, for caregivers. Um, you're trying, you're trying so hard to be everything too. And I heard another person say this really well, that um, after reading my book, they were like, you were the mother, you were the sister, you were the friend, you were the butler, you were the chauffeur, you were the nurse. And they just, they basically rattled off like everything I ever did for my sister. Mm. And when I heard it like that, I was a little overwhelmed. I was like, oh, yeah, that, wow. That's why that sucked. Yeah. (laughs) That's why that was so hard. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Because you feel so helpless. Like, on on, maybe it's just me who's always like, how do I fix this problem? (laughs) But, you know, and, and, but sometimes you just can't fix it and you have to like sit with that. And that's so hard for people to accept. Um, And you have a great talk that uh, I've been talking to Stanzi about for the last like hour before you got here um, (laughs) about death and euphemisms. And we talk a lot about that uh, going into hospitals and talking to people who are sick. And, and we have such a, we, we try to fix things and we try to say things, not necessarily for the person we're talking to, but for ourselves to make ourselves feel better because we're uncomfortable. And I like, that's why I do it because I'm uncomfortable and I want to fix it, but I really just want myself to feel better about the situation. And you have such a great perspective on that. Oh God, that's one of my favorite talks ever. And I really yeah. stress about <laughs> what, what to do for that talk. Um, but then I had had so much fun with it, especially when I found the most commonly used euphemisms across the U.S. That was uh, a great graphic, by I the know, way. Right? I love that. Right? And the audience really chuckled too. Um, yeah, it... I couldn't say Adrian died for six years. Like, mm. I couldn't say the D word. I couldn't do it. 
couldn't do it. And, um, and, and, and actually, so that talk actually came out of a, a poem I wrote mm-hmm. um, in grad school of all things about, you know, not being able to say the D word about euphemisms. And um, yeah, we, I, I don't think that is everyone. I think that has a lot to do with American culture. Um, and I think in a lot of ways it's gotten worse with these biohackers that are going to live 150 years. Good luck with that. Uh-huh. Personally, <laughs> I have zero desire to live that long, but okay. Um, but, but we do need to have those conversations. Um, you know, I, it always, it's really, it really strikes me when people have not, like, not had them at all. Like actually yesterday, I, I had a minor medical procedure yesterday, the time of this recording. And, um, and I overheard someone else getting checked in and, you know, and, and they were going through the list of things. Do you have this, this, or this? And, and the person asked this woman who was probably in her mid thirties, do you have an advanced directive? She says, what's that? Oh, and the, and the, the registrar says, oh, you know, that's a piece of paper. So if you can't speak for yourself, you can let, you know, the doctors know what you want, you know, and the woman goes, Oh no, I don't have that. And she goes, Oh, well, you don't need it. And she kept going. <laughs> ah, ah, was everything I could do not to just jump up. You know, I mean, I used to teach advanced directive workshops. I'm super passionate about it. And wow. I was just like, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Are you, I mean, I, you know, if you were, you know, if you were a young college student, maybe, but I, I feel like every adult should have advanced directive. But I love that you you talk so directly about death, and that that's a such an important. It seems like it's a an important platform, um, and thing that you're passionate about speaking about and educating people about. Um, and that gets me to like this idea. You call yourself a storyteller, and it seems like you use this craft to elevate important health topics. And I would love to hear you talk more about that. Like, what are the health topics that you're passionate about? And how do you use storytelling to advance those missions? I am. I am very passionate uh, about dying with dignity because mm-hmm. um, I've I've seen it um, done well. I mean, again, I'm probably going to get teary eyed, but I am proud that I gave my sister a really good death. You know, she mm-hmm. died at home in her bed, surrounded by people who loved her. Um, but I had to fight to make that happen. I had yeah. to go against doctor's orders. Um, Good for you. Yeah, thank you. Um, had she been an adult without advanced directive, she mm-hmm. would have died in the hospital on a respirator. Oh. Um, but because, you know, because she was a minor and I was her parent, um, there was only so much they could do. <laughs> and and uh, But I shouldn't have had to even do that. Um, so I, I am very passionate about dying with dignity um, and having those conversations um, I'm very, very passionate about um, patients who have advanced cancer, looking at clinical trials as a first option and not mm. a last resort. Mm-hmm. So important. Um, by the time clinical trials were even discussed for Adrian, um, and I've seen this play out over and over with so many other people, um, her immune system had been just decimated by four rounds of completely useless chemo. Oh. And it, it was too late. It, it was too late. And that oncologist on day one, that pediatric oncologist who had no experience really with her type of cancer should have said day one, one, I don't have this kind of experience. Let's Mm -hmm. find someone who does. And two, 
we need to start looking at clinical trials. And, um, you know, and even with my contacts at NCI and everything I could do and the mountains I tried to move, um, it was too late. Um, I mm-hmm. finally got her approved for a one woman, one young woman clinical trial. It was essentially phase two, um, meaning that they knew the drug was safe, but they had no idea if it was going to be effective. And I convinced everybody to get on board and sign off on it. And by the time that happened, um, she didn't get a chance to try the drug. She died a few days later. It was just too late. And um, so I'm very, very passionate about that. And I think clinical trials have a huge stigma and just sort of the general population not understanding, um, you know, what they are and and what they mean. Um, And and, and reforming clinical trials. You know, I, I wrote a whole piece about like a, a three pillars of, of like golden like clinical trial redesign. And I, you know, I don't know if it'll ever happen, but I really think if there was more um, more private companies involved in clinical trial design and if it was more of a positive experience, it would change mm-hmm. everything. Because the other problem with clinical trials is uh, doctors have a hard time, doctors and researchers getting people into clinical trials because they're so poorly designed. Mm, interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a real problem. I mean, I remember one time I was speaking at the FDA and talking with this doctor and he was great. And it was at, you know, um, UPMC in Pittsburgh, great hospital, great reputation, trying to get a clinical trial done for liver cancer. Not the most common cancer, but still major city, major liver cancer center. Shouldn't have been a problem. However, the way the trial was designed expected people to come into the city and they were not providing transportation. They were not paying for hotel rooms. They, oh my it, gosh. It, was, it was just shocking to me. And it's like, you know, and I just told myself, and you know, this was set up to fail, like totally set up to fail. Like unless someone's living in a city right near the hospital, it won't work. And and yeah, so I'm, yeah, I'm a li- little tiny bit passionate about that. <laughs> um, and just, and just overall, um, meeting people where they are in their cancer journey, you know, mm. meeting them right where they are. Um, and I feel like too, too often, um, patients don't ask questions because they're intimidated and then also just don't know the questions to ask. You really have to stand up for yourself. And it's not its not an easy thing to do. It's not. Um, mm. Especially against a an expert. But to, to use a joke I stole from somebody else uh, and to get Richard to talk a little more. Um, I'm just what, listening. I'm here to listen. <laughs> what, what do they call the person who graduated last in med school? A doctor doctor <laughs> you know, uh-huh. and I like most of the doctors I know but still I mean they're not perfect so well especially I mean you just you when you get the kind of wind knocked out of you you get this diagnosis and then all of a sudden you're supposed to have all of these questions when really everything's flying through your head and how do you organize it and and I think that's I'm always sad when people have to go through that alone and they don't have a someone to go with it, someone to go with them to sort of organize thoughts and write things down. And it's so overwhelming for everybody involved, yeah. but to be the person sitting there, how, 
has your writing and storytelling evolved over time? Ooh, I, well, I only have one book, Richard. Give me a break. Well, you, but you write, you write speeches, you write all kinds of stuff. Oh gosh. I, I don't, gosh, I don't know if it's evolved that much. Um, I, I do, I do try to think about the audience, uh, when I'm doing a presentation or speech. Um, and, but when it's a longer piece, if it's a long essay or like my book, it, I spend a lot of time thinking about structure, um, and, and more than anything else. And I remember asking one of my mentors one time, very, uh, very published author. And I said, how do you figure out the structure of your book? And she said, yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> and she was serious. Like, yeah, that is the problem. Um, and, and uh, I, I don't know. You just have to keep doing it. You just keep working on it. Um, you know, and, and you also have to know that sometimes you're going to write stuff that people just don't like or don't relate to. And then other times the stuff that you just kind of throw out there and don't think about very much, you know, people just respond to so um sometimes you just don't know mm. be honest why do you think writing is so important for people going through things or not going through things like what's the importance of of journaling and and writing and expressing yourself that way oh i think it's so important because our memories fade mm. and and change and and also everyone has their own interpretation of events. So if you can journal and it, it, it will mean something later to have, to have that stuff written down, whether you decide to publish it or do anything with it, it's just, I, I didn't know when I kept a medical journal for Adrian, um, our little black spiral notebook, I had no idea I was going to do something with that. Um, but I'm sure glad I did. And, and I'm glad that I kept track of everything because I felt I, turned out I really needed to. Um, but, uh, you know, and you don't have to write. That's the other thing. I think people get really intimidated by writing. Um, you don't have to be a writer. Um, if, if you really are intimidating, intimidated by writing, you can talk a journal if you really mm -hmm. want to. A lot of people like to do, and it's so easy now, right, with phones, you could do like a, a video journal, a vlog type journal, um, however you want to. Um, but just, you know, just do it. I, I mean, I think it's really special. And in some ways, social media has become that journal in many ways. Mm. But the problem is, is that that Instagram post or that Facebook post, you don't own that. That's, that's not yeah. yours. That's on someone else's platform. And that's Mr. Zuckerberg's platform. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think it's just so important to have something of yours that, that, that you keep. So I wanted you to talk just real briefly about, um, your other entrepreneurial pursuit of cancer university. Yeah. Can yeah. you share a little bit about this and what it is and what kind of resources you offer? Yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, Cancer University, or as we call it, Cancer U, really came out of a frustration I was seeing with my own nonprofit and other advocacy groups. Um, in that uh, even when you have the best possible patient 
educational materials. And I knew we did for that very specific cancer. And even when they're in layman's terms and easy to understand and you provide them for free, most of the time, as we've been talking about, people are not natural advocates. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just not a natural skill. And by my estimate over the years, I would say about 95% of people are just not natural advocates. But you can teach it. And my background when I was raising Adrian, I was a teacher. And then after she died, I went back to school, got my master's, gave USC more money. Thank you, USC. And <laughs> became an adjunct professor. And, and so, and, and I'm a certified coach. So that's my wheelhouse. I'm super comfortable there. And I've been coaching patients and caregivers pro bono for years, whether they mm. text me or email me or call me, they find me. Um, unfortunately, some have sent me medical records over Facebook. Please oh, don't no. do that, people, right? <laughs> don't do that. Okay? Now Mark Zuckerberg owns your medical <laughs> record. That's right. Don't do that. <laughs> um, but, you know, and so I was finding it's like, okay, you can actually teach this stuff, but me, myself, and I, I'm not scalable. And so it was a huge gap that I felt like was was missing. And and that's how Cancer You came about. So I um, was thinking about my own experience again with Adrian and how, you know, less than 48 hours after an ER doctor said she had tumors in her liver and lungs, I had to make major decisions about her treatment. And I couldn't even pronounce her cancer, guys. Mm-hmm. I, could, I didn't even know what it was. I was like, what, what? And and I grew up around, you know, doctors and hospitals because our mother was a nurse. So I felt like I sort of knew where I was, but I was lost. And I kept thinking, you have to go back to school. Like, like, like you're going back to school. That's what this mm-hmm. is. And that's how the idea came to me, Cancer University. Um, and I then I entered an entrepreneurial competition sponsored by Estella's. And I literally had this idea the name, and I threw up a web page <laughs> to enter the competition. And um, and that year, out of 160 entries from 21 countries, I got in the top 10. Wow. Yeah. I was, so I was super stoked. Spoke to the Estelle's executives. They, they understood what I was trying to do, where I was coming from, loved it. And I was like, okay, that gave me a little bit of momentum and uh, the motivation to really um, – vet the idea a little bit more. And so that's what I did. I spent like six months vetting the idea with patients and caregivers, advocates, survivors, and providers and everybody. And every single person said, yes, like you, you need to do this. So um, I found another co-founder because I really did not want to do it by myself. Um, it's one thing to have a nonprofit and a very specific, very niched cancer where I'm pretty well known now versus a for-profit health tech startup mm. um, that's trying to help it all cancers. Um, and so that's what Cancer U is. It is a for-profit. It's an online membership platform. It's for both patients and caregivers to educate, empower, and engage them to become advocates for their cancer care to improve outcomes, but also reduce cost. So mm-hmm. Cancer U is free for patients and caregivers because our business model is B2B. So the customers our payers, providers, and pharmaceutical companies. Oh, it's genius. Um, thank you. Oh, thanks. That means so a lot smart. Nancy's like, I'm going to write that down. <laughs> and we're writing this <laughs> down. <laughs> I'm going to circle back with her about right. board positions. How, yeah. Like, so. I'm sure that's like a whole other episode about how that even happens. <laughs> but again, 
a different episode. <laughs> I know this will come back next week. Long rabbit trail. Well, I was going to say, I don't want to take up your entire day and you're going to have to come back at least six or seven times this month alone. <laughs> but uh, we've been talking for a little while and I know you want to give everyone a little silence is also important. We've talked a lot about advocating for yourself and asking questions and it's super important to um, speak up, but it's also important to be silent sometimes. And you have a gift for everybody for that. I do. So I'm a talker. So it's very, very hard for me to meditate. Um, but I did my first yoga teacher training when I was 40. And and for me, that's the hardest part. Was I was like, oh, meditation. I can't do this. I'm out. And... <laughs> um, but once I've sort of figured it out and understood it better, it was, it was wonderful. So I actually meditate silently, not like Jack Dorsey does, I think all weekend at a time. No, 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 no. I don't do that. Um, not even for 20 minutes, uh, four minutes every day. And I used to do it in the morning and now I actually do it at night because it really helps me get to sleep. And, um, and the key is really breathing through it. And, and I actually have a little app to help me with the breathing. Um, and also just not worrying about it too much. Like I think a lot of people, at least for me, when I was learning to meditate, I I got mad at myself for having thoughts during meditation. Mm -hmm. Like, Oh oh God, I'm thinking, Oh, oh, oh," you know, don't worry. That's going to happen. Like that's just, you know, your, your monkey mind working overtime or whatever. Don't worry about it. Um, and the more you connect with your breath, the easier it is to not have those thoughts. Um, but something that's really key that I learned is if you are someone who's really prone to anxiety um, or you have trouble sleeping like I do, it's really important when you start meditating to actually shorten your inhale and lengthen the exhale. Because mm-hmm. you want you don't want to bring in more anxiety. You don't want to bring in more energy. You want to actually let it out. And then if you're the opposite, if you're someone who tends to be more toward depression um, or you're just having like a bad day, you're feeling a little slow, lethargic, you actually want to lengthen the inhale and um, shorten the exhale. Um, But for this purpose, I actually keep it pretty even. Um, Do you guys, are we going to do, you want to try to do this for like a whole minute? Absolutely. Okay. Dead right. air on a podcast. No, Absolutely. All right. Okay. We'll do it. Uh, we'll just do one minute. So just get in a totally comfortable position. Closing your eyes is optional. And I will just say inhale and exhale. I recommend in through your nose and, and out through your nose or in through your nose and out through your mouth, unless you're conge- congested and then forget about it. So, um, and just, you know, just focus on the breath, but don't worry about your thoughts. And here we go. Inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. Inhale, exhale, inhale, 
Inhale. Exhale. And that is one minute. Oh, that feels really good. I feel like that last <laughs> breath, it just like really clicked in for me. And I needed that <laughs> long week. I feel like now we should start the interview over. And then let's start over. Oh, it's all over. <laughs> How can people best connect with you, uh, Andrea? Oh, uh, with me, just go to the book's website, actually, betteroffbald.com. All my Perfect. social media is there. You can find me there. Um, with For Blue Fairy, bluefairy.org, B-L-U-E-F-A-E-R-Y, or yeah, that's right, Y.org. And for Cancer U, cancer.university. Perfect. And we will put all those in the show notes over at uh, heartsneedart.org. You can click on podcast, find this episode, look up all the things. Andrea, <laughs> thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me. And you're going to have to tell me eventually or sometime about the Wizard of Oz. So. We can have like a viewing. We'll have a virtual viewing. <laughs> and I should have brought in my, hold on, but when we're like done with this, I'm going to show you a photo. Okay. Um, oh, awesome. I love so it. So when we're done, uh, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on, on wherever you're listening to us or watching us, YouTube and all the podcast places that you do that. Go to heartsneedart.org, click on podcast for all of the information Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next week. Keep creating, everyone. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Arts for the Health of It, a podcast produced by Hearts Need Art, creative support for patients and caregivers in partnership with the National Organization for Arts and Health. You can help others learn about the healing power of the arts by subscribing, sharing, and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen or watch. The podcast is hosted by Richard Wilmore, co-hosted by Constanza Rader, and produced by Ivan Briones. Our theme song, Songbird, is written and performed by Natalie Lane. Visit heartsneedart.org to learn how you can support our mission to create joy with people facing life-altering health challenges. Join us next week to learn more ways you can create arts for the health of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Heartsneed Art, their staff, board members, or other affiliates. All content is created for informational purposes only. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice or to diagnose and treat any health condition. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health professional with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you heard on this podcast.